0: Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. Each week, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson are joined by an informed guest to discuss the issues of the day. In this episode, Mike is joined by Ron Vezina, Vice President for Public Affairs at Canadian Blood Services, to discuss the say do gap between intention and action. This gap lately much in the spotlight for vaccination and climate change, is particularly apparent when it comes to donating blood, an activity that Canadians universally agree is a good thing to do. However, just under 4% of the eligible population actually donates. What's most critical to addressing this gap? For Canadian Blood Services, it's trust, built by stakeholder consultation, ensuring safety, and being accountable over the long term. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Educated Conjecture. My colleague and co-host, Sean Simpson, is on vacation this week, um, taking a, a, a little break after the federal election. We're about two weeks after the federal election. And uh, I think it's a bit of a, a test because uh, uh, Sean's actually the more thoughtful one of us, and he actually does the prep work and thinks about questions, um, which I don't. Um, so, um, But I, I have a ringer uh, this week um which is going to help me quite a bit we have a great guest to to talk to us today but it's something that's i i think everybody will we universally agree is extremely important to everyone but I would venture to say that very few people really give it very much thought, which may be part of the challenge that that Ron's going to talk to us about, uh, and that is the Canadian blood system. And so we have um, Ron Besna here uh, with us. Um, Ron's the vice president of public affairs for Canadian blood services. He has uh, over 25 years of experience in public affairs, business communications, most of that. Um, in the health system working in teaching hospitals Um, but for over the over 15 years almost the past 16 years um, working at Canadian Blood Services where I first met Ron uh, he brings a wealth of knowledge, uh, a great perspective. I said on on the health system, the industry overall. And in addition, I can say, um, as as a as a client and a colleague and someone I've gotten to know, he and the entire team at Canadian Blood Services are some of the most fantastic, thoughtful, uh, great people to work with. So I want to say, welcome, Ron. How are you today?
1: I'm well, Mike. Thank you very much for those kind words and introduction. Clearly, uh, uh, this this podcast lends itself to lots more flattery than our day to day conversations. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for, for sure, it does, uh, and and I haven't even commented on your fantastic golfing skills, uh, but but I'll get there. Um, so, Ron, uh, I have lots to cover. I think there's some really interesting things. Um, uh, particularly, uh, we'll talk about blood services, but I also think in in light of the pandemic and some of the struggles around vaccinations and some other issues i i i i want to i want to touch on because i think you get some great lessons learned for 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 most of the people who will listen uh to the podcast um but i want to talk today i want to start off every every week uh uh, sean and i start off with sort of our our findings of the day or our stat of the day um so i'm going to Talk about something that that the state essentially the say do gap. Um, I'll come back to it later, but at first I want to lay out some some numbers for folks because I I think it's it's really interesting. Um, There's a lot of discussion today about you know how do we close the say do gap uh, amongst you know Canadians people. You know people say they want to protect the environment, then they go buy an SUV. Uh, People say they're going to get vaccinated, and then they don't. Um, You know there's a lot of good intentions that don't turn into actions. And I think um, like I know blood services may have one of the ultimate say do gaps uh, and, and I know you don't have to close it completely to be a successful organization but when you look at it you know and, and I know this from the work we've done for you over the last well, couple decades Almost everyone universally understands the need for blood, and almost everyone thinks that donating blood is a good thing to do. So you have a huge uh, halo-positive thing to do. About half of the Canadians, we know because we've we've asked the questions and and through uh, sort of their their life experience, um, will have themselves or a personal family member actually needs blood or needs a blood product in their lifetime. So you got. You know, universal acceptance, half who need it. And then we know on our ongoing work with you, it's about a quarter of Canadians who say, you know, I plan to donate blood in the next couple of months. But then year after year, it's about, is it about 4% still, run right now that, that donate blood? Yeah, about uh, just under 4% just of the eligible population. Of the eligible population, yeah. So you've got this um, this great gap. And, I, and, I, and I'd love to come back to the say-do gap in a, in a bit. But I think for those who don't, Underst- who don't, who haven't thought about Canadian Blood Services, uh, who who have seen your great logos and some of the work, and you know may have a, a remember memory of some things they've seen, but weren't around, say, 20 years ago. Um, can you do a quick recap um, of sort of how Canadian Blood Services came to be?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So, you know, prior to this pandemic, uh, the tainted blood crisis of the 1980s uh, and and early 90s was the greatest public health crisis that we'd ever seen as a country. Um, There were uh, tainted products that that harmed patients and there was uh, about uh, 12 to 1500 people that were infected with HIV and another 20 to 30,000 that were infected with hepatitis C um billions and billions of dollars in compensation that were uh, that arose as a result of uh, of uh, that tragedy the tragedy happened as a result of uh, systemic failure it wasn't uh, wasn't uh, any evil people that were maliciously trying to harm people but it was really a collapse of responsibility accountability and and you know um maybe an absence of of transparency on some of the decision making and trying to preserve product versus uh, what we now have as the precautionary principle, which is basically until you have evidence that something is not potentially harmful to the blood system, you assume that it is. Uh, So so a lot of people were hurt uh, from from the tainted blood crisis and and, uh, as a result, uh, trust in the system collapsed. You know, about one in two people didn't feel that it was either safe to receive blood, to give blood, and didn't think that the system uh, it didn't have confidence in the system for Canadians. So that, if you want, is the legacy uh, of what happened. And as a result of a massive inquiry, the Creever inquiry that was held um, a number of recommendations came, came out of that. And one of them was the, well, one of the results of this was the creation of a new agency. Uh, uh, we are a not-for-profit charitable organization uh, that was born in 1998 and uh, we are principally funded by the provinces and territories. That so we do receive some uh, funding from uh, the federal government on some portfolios, and we receive philanthropic giving from uh, other generous corporate supporters. But uh, the the majority of our budget comes from the provinces and territories. So we're kind of a little bit of a Frankenstein. Organization in the sense that healthcare is typically delivered provincially, uh, and we operate at a national level. Uh, in the absence of uh, Quebec, Quebec has Hema Quebec that operates the blood system there, but in every other province and territory, Canadian Blood Services is the uh, the provider of uh, blood and transplantation services uh, that that cut across the country.
0: I, I remember, um, um, not that I'm this old, but I remember in 1999, and it always it always stuck with me. It was a, a focus group participant. Um, when we were talking about trust, uh, who said uh, basically it was a longtime donor who'd stopped and said, "I don't, I don't give money to charitable organizations that waste money or get involved in scandals. Why in the world would I give my blood to these guys today?" Um, and so, um, you know, I know it's been a been a long road, and and you know, your trust scores are fantastic now. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of that 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 journey from. <laughs> from from to intent to from bust to trust from yeah. bust to trust yeah
1: yeah yeah so so again this was something that uh, trust had to be won back or earned uh, and i we we firmly believe in the organization that it's earned every day in in how we deliver uh, and how we focus on safeguarding the system for our patients and our donors and uh, and all that participate. Um, you know, I think it's Warren Buffett that said, you know, uh, trust is built over 20 years, but it can run out of the room in 20 seconds. Uh, so, so it is about continually um, having that touchstone, uh, embedding these principles. Safeguard, or, you know, safety is our are always our our top principle. Uh, sure, we we you know we have uh, operational pillars that are safeguard, engage, and improve, but they're they're tiered, and and we always put primacy on safety of the system. I, I think that's how you uh, gain the trust of people back. I think you also have to involve them in decision making. Uh, public participation is a very big part of uh, the DNA of our organization. Um, you know, a little bit of that principle of never about us without us. So involving people uh, that are consumers of blood products or the donors and how we design systems, our hospital clients, uh, really is uh, uh, a focus on the donor experience, the employee experience and the hospital experience um, that are really driving a lot of what we do. We also understand that as a publicly funded organization, uh, that we have a stewardship job of these public funds, and, and we owe uh, Canadians and taxpayers uh, a debt of responsibility to uh, manage those funds appropriately. So, yeah, there's there's a multiple facets that come with trying to rebuild and and uh, and retain trust, but it's not something we take for granted.
0: Yeah, I would also say, as as someone who uh, not to 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 steal and answer your my question for you, but as someone who uh, has worked with you guys, um, it has been remarkable to me um, the consistency and of the of the view, and they were in this for the long term perspective. Um, it's an organization that's never really chased the short term wins or decided that message is a little boring. Let's see if we can shake it up. Um, It has been a constant barrage of stick to what we we know, stick to what we know works. And it may not always be the sexiest thing coming out of the organization. But I think over time, it's really built a, a ton of trust and credibility.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, we relaunched and reinvigorated our brand in 2018, 20 years into our journey. And if you want, it's a bit of a touchstone uh, for us. to. Uh, it, our brand isn't just a marketing, it's not logos, it's, it's sure that's part of your identity, but it's really what do we stand for as an organization? What do we believe in? What is our mission, vision, values? Uh, uh, how do we want to be uh, known as an organization? So yes, in some cases, I think in some of the focus groups, people called us comfortably beige and to <laughs> attract the next generation of, of donors and partners and uh and uh and talent uh beige maybe not the color that we wanted to go for but i think there was an element of you know don't be too risque uh we like the this you know the the fact that you're an organization uh that uh, you're not going to take too many chances sometimes we you know we have to learn where to take the chances like you don't take it on the products or the services but Maybe you can take some business chances here or there uh, for some potential wins. So uh, overall, I think people, you know, kind of think of us as when they do think of us, they think of us as this more stable organization, and they like that bedrock uh, uh, underneath as a safety net for the system.
0: Uh, I was I was going to hop to ask later on about sort of the the future of blood services, uh, but since you've brought in the brand, and I know that it, that that the, the The brand was, you know, you said 20 years in, time for a change. But it really was time for a change because of where you're going in the future. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, when you think about changing demographics, some of the need, I know the push into Plasma, um, really, really, you know, what drove the brand change? Um, It wasn't a desire to have a new logo.
1: No, that's right. And I think um, it was time. Uh, A lot of things had changed in 20 years. We were principally a blood-only organization uh, when our mission, vision, values were established and, and our operations uh, were set up. Uh, as they matured, uh, we, we got into other biologics manufacturing areas. You talked about a few. There's stem cells, uh, you know, stem cells that are transplanted from either adults to other adults or uh, umbilical cord blood banking that, that are used for uh, pediatric cases. Uh, the plasma industry, as you say, it's a derivative of blood that's transfused. Sometimes directly, and sometimes it's uh, rendered into uh, medicines, uh, pharmaceutical uh, um, agents that are that are really important for people with immune issues and and all kinds of other uh, either blood cancers or blood issues. So, so the, as the as the footprint of the organization grew, as our stakeholders started to change and vary. We did look at our brand and say, is is it helping us or hurting us or holding us back? And and we we determined that we needed to refresh, uh, hold on to some of the parts that 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 I think people came to know and trust. Uh, but also build um, and signal where we're going in the future. And that was a little bit of a modernization. Um, Also, a better reflection of the transplantation side of our business. Uh, You'll see, uh, even in the coloring there, the the green represents the transplantation side. It's not forest green, as you often see for organ donation, but uh, it's a tip of the cap to the fact that we are firmly in that area. Looking forward, you, you alluded to, you know, some of the demographics, that is obviously a priority for us going forward. It's not only attracting youth. I think our average blood donor base is 43, and you can start donating when you're uh, 17. So we do need that next generation to pick up the torch uh, from the few that are holding up the system today. Uh, but there's also a need for greater diversity in the system. I think uh, as Canada changes uh, the the transfusion and transplantation system has to better reflect the people that we're serving. And in some cases, we are really underrepresented and, and we need to make our cause and our organization more appealing uh, to to get more folks in the door participating in some of these programs. Uh, in, in In the blood system, you know, there are some very specialized areas where, uh, where your ethnic diversity makes a difference in matching. And, and we see that in stem cells, too. So uh, there's not only the broader relevance of the organization as, as Canada changes, but there's actually biological needs to diversify our donor base as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think for people, who, and, I, and I learned this a long time ago working with you guys, but for people who don't know, right, that, that for stem cells in particular, ethnic diversity is huge, right? Blood is... Blood is for the most part, well, it's not universal, but blood is blood, right? It, it doesn't it doesn't recognize ethnicity. But if you're um, uh, if if you're a, if you're a mixed ethnicity, finding a DNA match in the stem cell pool, you have to find someone else who is of that mixed ethnicity, so, and, and so you know the, the percentages go way down if, uh, um, if if you need those kind of things. So it, it's crucial, yeah. as you said, to be reflective of the population, and um, not surprisingly, given the way. Um, the history of blood um, systems around the world started. I mean, they started largely with war efforts um, and they started, you know, <laughs> largely with the, the the majority of the population based and they didn't have a lot of diversity in them. So uh, it's good to see it's changing.
1: An area of continued focus. I think we need to yeah. do better. We need to do better there. And uh, we got to find out ways to make it more engaging for uh, certain communities to, to participate.
0: Now, I know you've had... Um, You've made some shifts in in, in collections from urban, rural. Um, you know, you know, we were pre-pandemic, and I'll get the. Well, we'll start maybe start a little talk about the impact of the pandemic. But aside from the short-term impact of the pandemic, we were uh, on a path to greater urbanization in the country, and we'll see if this push back to the suburbs or I saw recently Atlantic Canada for the first time in like a a decade, you know, had to net growth uh, in, in, you know, internal migration from parts of, you know, Ontario, Quebec, out to the East. Um, Is that going to have an impact on you guys?
1: So it's a really good strategic question. Certainly prior to the pandemic, the organization was moving towards greater urbanization. I think we have um, in, uh, if if you look at it, we have, like fixed donor centers that are there every day of the week, and in, in, uh, permanent locations—we call them permanence—and uh, and we have mobile clinics. These are the ones that go around; they set up a temporary location, sometimes a community center, sometimes in a workplace or a place of worship. Uh, there, there's uh, these are mobile collections. And and um, in, in the past, there were there's a more equitable mix of of uh, collections uh, blood collections that came from both of those areas over time though we you know i talked about stewardship of public funds um well we we started to you know really data crunch and, and look at where um what our operations were costing us and where we could see the most efficiency and there was a move towards greater urbanization i think today it's about 70% of our collections that come from our permanent locations, which are mainly urban areas, and about 30% that come from these mobile collection areas. So these mobile collection areas, you know, you have to pay staff to get on a bus, you have to do setup, up tear-down time. So this is all kind of, if you want to call it, unproductive. It's like a concert tour. Yeah, exactly. So and, and, the, and the time that you're doing all those things is, is time that you're not bringing in blood products. So it, it is much more efficient... Uh, to to uh, collect in large urban areas where there's population density and where um, you have a permanent location, uh, but in diversity. some yeah absolutely in 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 our cities uh, um, and and in our uh, those areas, um, but but there's also the question of do you fish where the fish are or do you fish where the fish bite and in some <laughs> cases those uh, rural communities are are you know are historically high performing communities so. Um and you know part of the challenge we're seeing right now though right actively in the pandemic uh is the you know the closure of facilities so we did a lot of collections in high schools and universities and and they've want to minimize traffic and in some cases have been closed down or no one's there um in some cases community centers that are you know having to close their doors for all but essential services so you know, our owned properties are the ones that we control. Are a little bit more um, uh, giving us a state of control. Uh, so, so that continues to be a driver. But uh, yes, we have to think going forward. If if more people start saying, you know, um, I'm moving to digital life and and uh, work from home, and I'm going to buy land out in, in rural areas, so you're going to see movement out of the cities and more to the rural. Then then we'll have to ensure that we continue to have operations that can service uh, those needs as well.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's um, it is a habit forming activity. People who do it. um, I know from all the work we've done, you know, and I don't mean habit in a, like a bad habit, but, but it becomes this, this um, um, huge defining piece of who they are and why they want to go back and do it. They really enjoy it. And they really feel good about it at the same time. um, Convenience location, matters hugely um i remember talking to a woman who told me how much she loved donating and had donated for over 25 years and everything was great and then she stopped and i said why she goes well they i retired and they weren't in my building Twice a year yeah. anymore, uh, right. and, and so and she goes and I just didn't think about it, and here I am three years later, and now that I'm talking to you, I'm going to go find out where they are, and so you know how do you how do you reach those people um, is is incredible. Uh, we're uh, actually I will send you some some research we're doing on social cohesion. Uh, you talked about fishing where the fish are versus where they bite, and you know do smaller communities have a, a tighter um, have more social capital, um, and uh, so we did a nice survey ten thousand Canadians, and I'm going to have some data in a couple of weeks. I will share with you. I look um, forward to that, that. Will will help out. Um, the the pandemic. So um, everybody's favorite topic. Um, everybody would like it to be over, but we're still living in hopefully the tail end of it. But if you go back, uh, let's go back six months to like eighteen months ago in that year. Uh, what was the impact on blood services?
1: Wow. Uh, well, so if you think about it, the the nature of our cause is one of congregating and bringing people together. So so when we start hearing about sh- things shutting down, obviously we got quite concerned that, that people would start avoiding our blood donor centers as well. So obviously we worked very closely with public health officials, even the prime minister at the time, and, and Dr. Theresa Tam reminded people that this was still uh, a life essential and, and that uh, uh, they were required to, um, to keep our, our healthcare system going. There's no link between the blood products and and treating people with COVID, um, although some research was undergoing, uh, but but other operations, other cancer treatments had to keep going. And as a result, we had to keep the blood flowing. So what ended up happening is we saw different waves. Uh, At first, uh, a little bit of a drop and and some concern. Then after a bit of a public push to remind people this was still an option, we actually saw a surge and, and we saw a surge in some new donors as well uh, people that, that said that they felt helpless during the pandemic didn't know what they could do to help in some cases we heard from people say it's the only thing i can do to leave my home legitimately and, and actually have a couple of hours to myself away from the kids <laughs> or and, and i'm doing good at the same time so you know there was a, a whole variety of different uh, experiences that people had during that period But, uh, you know, as different periods of closures and reopenings happened, what we actually saw is as things reopened, people had more competition for their time. So while there is no other blood organization in Canada competing for our blood donors, they, they really, at the end of the day, what we're competing for is their time. You know, it's coaching kids soccer, going to concerts, going to the cottage, whatever else it may be you talked about fitting it into your routine. Yeah, you fit it into your life and somehow, uh, and for some people, when there's competing priorities for their time and they've been locked up for a long time, uh, they want to get out. And sometimes uh, that blood donation appointment isn't top of their list. Uh, so yeah, we saw some some blips, some ups and downs. I'm happy to say that throughout the pandemic, we're not aware of any patient that needed blood products that went without Um, certainly on the transplant side of the business and organs and tissues and stem cells, uh, same thing on stem cells. We had some issues at first uh, the the stem cell program is international. So we have, uh, you know, transplants that come from other countries and the borders were shut. We have couriers that actually, you know, deliver these on, on commercial flights. So a lot of scrambling to be done with, uh, with officials and uh, find, you know, we, we managed to keep uh, the stem cells flowing uh, with a lot of help from our government partners and, and internationals. Organ donation was an area that, that uh, as a result of uh, ICUs being crowded with uh, COVID patients, I think we saw a reduction in number of transplants there. So there were some severe impacts there that uh, that I hope we we can you know uh, start to uh, purge through. But uh, there's definitely been impacts there. Not as a direct result of of COVID, but as a result of the healthcare system being overwhelmed.
0: Okay. Um, that, that's great. I know we did, uh, again, work for you guys post SARS with our colleague and friend Tony Steed on, uh, yes. you know How do how do you organize during a pandemic? So again, more evidence that you guys were uh, far ahead of the curve and thinking about these things. Um, you mentioned uh, Dr. Tam and um, <laughs> and and i thought, you know. Uh, other uh, health advisors and the prime minister and other politicians. Um, You guys are are first and foremost a science-based, evidence-based organization um, and have anchored yourself in and communicated it. Any, any, in hindsight, recommendations for uh, officials who were thrust into the pandemic and then suddenly had to say, well, we're following the advice of scientific authorities. So, you know, changes that happened over time suddenly people were like well yesterday I couldn't do this and now I can day before you know uh you know I I think you know those of us who follow the science a little bit were like okay well it makes sense but for a lot of Canadians it was like um uh, how come kids can go to school but uh, I can't have people in my backyard how come you know any 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 recommendations for how in the next (laughs) pandemic we can get ahead (laughs) of the curve and and uh, talk about anchor ourselves in the science a little bit i know admittedly the pandemic moved a, a lot faster uh the science so yeah. Yeah, so,
1: so i guess that, that that would be my comment is that it, um i don't actually have a ton of criticism um about them relying on science but the 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 challenge they had is that the science was changing daily mm-hmm. and they were trying to keep up policy wise with the daily changes so maybe the you know if if the um if there's any maybe take-home message, is is to pause. Pause and reflect about how how the master narrative is influenced by this development on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday. And and is it important that we get that out as as soon as possible, or do we have to let it simmer a bit and think about how that fits into the broader conversation? Is this likely to change by Friday? Um, But but at the end of the day, I, I think... Uh, you have to you have to live yourself some wiggle room and, and let people know when you're implementing something that this could change as a result of the science changing. The other interesting uh fact here, Mike, that I'm not sure we would have experienced in the last pandemic, is this whole idea of alternate facts. So so it used yeah. to be that the, the science and the evidence was the science and the evidence. Now people say well, that's your science or that's your evidence or those are your facts i have different facts It's like it's like the upside down world but but you know this is it's a challenge for for people that are in risk communications that are trying to use evidence-based approach as their touchstone while others are people saying yeah but your evidence is not my evidence or not the right evidence and and just like i there's no rational way to debate that kind of thing uh, I find what we're dealing with are health matters, matters of personal choice, and they're very emotive, right? And people mm-hmm. don't always go back to the, the rational side of their brain for, for those things. So how do you, as a, a risk communicator or an evidence-based organization, um, translate that? Uh, I I think, you know, in some cases... Uh, they've used some good things like, uh, um, you know, uh, public personas or, or celebrities or other spokespeople to resonate their messages. Uh, I, I think that in some cases, it's it, it, some of the, the faux pas. I, I don't know if I would have done anything differently because uh, it was such a rapidly evolving situation. What, what we tend to do is, you know, try to scenario plan for these things and say, OK, what if we come out and and uh, there's this kind of reaction or confusion or whatever then how will we handle that so as much as possible you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure um and i think in some cases uh you know some some scenario planning is, is always a good thing that may have been done in this pandemic but uh that's one of our key takeaways i think the last point i'll make on this is um we did have a pandemic plan, uh, you know, ready that had been developed years ago, but it didn't pan, like the the pandemic didn't pan out the way that that pandemic plan had been forecasted. So you have to be adaptable. You have to read the environment. You have to read your, your stakeholders and, and your partners. And you have to, you know, you have to be afraid, to, not afraid to say, hey, listen, I know we said that a few weeks ago. This is what's changed since, and that's why our position is changing. We've had to do that on a few things, whether it's masking in our donor centers or vaccination policies. Um, and, and you know, I, I think we, we have to give ourselves a latitude to change a position when there's new
0: evidence that suggests that it's the way to go. Oh, that's excellent, and I, and I agree 100%. I mean, I, I didn't mean to be critical in asking the question. I, I think no, no, no. time was time which is a huge factor um things that you know announcements made tuesday as you noted were changed on friday because the science changed and it was rolling in and and um i, I think in for you guys you had the luxury in some cases that it's months or years of study before you make a shift um you know but you still had to you know to do it over time and i and i think trust in the messenger is, is crucial um all the things so that that's great. yeah. And, and
1: i think you have to let people know too uh that uh you insulate yourself from some of the political pressures out there, and that's large P and small p mm-hmm. uh, that that you are you're w- willing to weather this uh, the storm of criticism or or whatever it may be, um, for the sake of of always being able to stand on the leg that we're doing this in the in the face of evidence
0: and and science uh, that are driving our decision making. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, I want to go back to the, 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 the tease I did at the very beginning about the say, do gap. Um, yeah. cause I, I think it's important. I mean, obviously it's, in, it's important for you guys, but it's, I think it's important for everybody right now, you know, as we chap grapple with climate change, as we grapple with, um, uh, a whole range of social issues that require us to change our behaviors, um, or accept changes in lifestyle, whether we, you know, it, whether they're legislated or through, you know, through different means. Um, any any recommendations to the you know and know it's very hard not to be specific, but how do you motivate people to donate?
1: oh God if you can answer that I've got a job <laughs> for you on our team yeah <laughs> uh no i I mean I think there's all kinds of um, uh, there's all kinds of triggers and and uh, levers we can pull to try to motivate people as you would know like there's there's uh, some of our lifelong donors that, that, that come easiest to us are the ones who have had um, the, the behavior modeled by an influential person in their life. So either they've had a teacher, a coach, a parent, a grandparent who has been a donor and modeled that behavior for them, or they know someone in their circle uh, that has required blood or blood products. Uh, I think I've told you before, when I before I joined uh, Canadian Blood Services, I worked in a hospital, and and when I first joined CBS, you know, I was thinking, well, how do you get blood to a hospital? Well, you know, someone at the hospital picks up the phone, they call, and someone brings it on a truck, and that's how you get blood to the hospital. Simple. It is not simple. It is, you know, these, uh, The raw material, if you want, the, the, is, is walking around out there in human beings yeah. that, that are motivated by all kinds of different things. And we're counting on a voluntary, uh, non-remunerated system where people come in and get some snacks uh, as an appreciation and, and to bring back their fluids. But uh, at the end of the day, it's their motivation is about helping others. So you got to find those right levers. And I think the say-do gap, as you say – Um, for us it has been pretty consistent over at least a decade you know 25 26 percent say they're going to do give blood in the next uh, couple of months but our our stats tell us that there's less than four percent of the eligible population that do so what we try to do is, is try to remind people how it's relevant and that how we can't take it for granted it's you know, it's like the tap water, when you turn on the tap, you expect it to be there. People expect that there's blood uh, that's going to be there when they're, um, when they go for surgery, or when they have a loved one that's in the hospital, or that, you know, if there's someone undergoing cancer treatment, or needing organ transplant, that those things are going to be there when they need them. So our motivation is really to try to Uh, Help people understand how close they are to that need and and to try to see if we can leverage our current donors to to find other donors that are like them, you know, motivated by the same things and perhaps looking at different socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, uh, consistencies across the donor base. And then that helps us go fishing if you want, for, for similar people that are most likely to be uh, interested in it. Uh, you know, my son uh, is 17. He's going to turn 17 in a few weeks, and I suggested for his birthday. It's a great rite of passage. You know, at 16, you get a driver's license. At 18, you can vote. You know, in Ontario, at 19, you can go to a bar. Uh, but at 17, you can give blood. He is deathly afraid of anything medical. And I honestly think he might pass out if I brought him to a donor center. So, it's not for everyone. So, we got yeah. to find the people for whom it's for, like for whom this is an opportunity. And I think for some people, it's just getting over that first hump. Of of that first experience and they realize that it doesn't hurt and and you're not exsanguinated you don't necessarily feel faint afterwards Uh, it can happen to some people but in general that's not the the case we take one pint out of 11 that are in your body and it starts to regenerate it's like a recycling uh, immediately and within 56 days uh, that 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 unit is replenished in your system so really is kind of like renewable energy uh, in, in our case. And I think it's an interesting uh, thing to try to uh, motivate folks. But yes, there's, as you know, some people are motivated by um, um, by altruistic feelings. Others might be a competitive spirit with, I want to beat my dad's 50 donations. Or, you know, in some cases, hey, I just stumbled upon this. A friend brought me or it was happening at my high school or my university or my college. Uh, I tried it and I I liked it and now I fit it into my lifestyle. So uh, we need a a real large array of uh, our toolkit to try to motivate people. And it's not a cookie cutter across uh, every uh, demographic or every person.
0: It's also something that I I know you've worked a lot on. It's um, where you have to make the the process and the experience uh, (laughs) smooth, convenient and a gratifying one. Because as you said, some people stumble across it. I remember... Someone, in a, again, in a focus group saying, you know, I, he donated for 20 years, and I asked him his first donation. He said, I went to a movie, and it was sold out. So rather than, <laughs> rather than go home, there was a blood clinic across the road. I went and donated blood. I thought I'd kill a couple hours. It didn't take him a couple hours. And then I went back to watch the, the late movie, but it was completely by happenstance. And then I looked at him, and I said, so how long have you been donating? He's like 19 years. On. Uh, on a regular basis. And and I was like, so, you know, we just were the right place, right time. He goes, I guess. And then I enjoyed it and seemed like a good thing. And I thought, why wouldn't I go back and do it? Um, yeah. so you the experience is obviously crucial as well.
1: You, you can do all the motivation and marketing in the world and have a world class. If, if then the donor comes, uh, to a donor center and has a lunch bag letdown experience, uh, you ain't getting them back. And plus, yeah. you know, they're going to tell 10 of their friends uh, how bad that experience was. So we've, in the last number of years, we've really doubled down on the donor experience across uh, our blood program, uh, certainly in our plasma program, trying to make it uh, a, a valued a personal experience that, uh, that people feel that they're they're, they're getting something, um, you know, intrinsic and and, and good out of. Uh, but you know, it's not just airy fairy stuff. Like we've implemented IT systems for feedback. Uh, we've uh, updated like a lot of digital components for online booking, uh, for queuing in the donor center, so people don't feel like they're in the dark where they're at the process. Uh, and, and we've actually really managed to uh, improve the, the time in the system as well. The donors, are, our standard is that you're in and out uh, within an hour, and more often than not, it's less than that. Whereas a number of years ago, we were experiencing longer donation times. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we're competing with other charitable organizations for whom you pick up your cell phone. Uh, you, you text a number and you donate uh, and, and you're done, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's it's an easy way to do good um, uh, for your conscience. Uh, certainly, we accept financial donations as part of the many ways that you can give at CBS, but uh, uh, we also have to make sure that that coming in and given a biological gift, which is either blood or stem cells or plasma or organs, tissues, whatever it may be, that that experience has to be top notch uh, to keep... People coming back, and, and as I mentioned earlier, also rely on some of those donors to be our advocates and uh, and uh, recruiting other donors on our behalf. And they won't do
0: that unless they they feel like they're valued. I want to get your thoughts on Canada's healthcare model because I I think you guys are 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 very or at least a bit unique. You're not for profit, pan Canadian, publicly funded model with a very specific task within the health system. It's broader than any task, but a very specific mandate. Um, You're essentially run like a private corporation, um, delivering a crucial public mandate. Um, Why, you know, this came up in the election, you know, as soon as we got into healthcare, people started saying, well, there's two tier, you know, public pay, private pay, et cetera. But, but, But why can't we do this with other aspects of the health system? Or um, is there a path to doing it? Um, what's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, I think in, for some things there should be. There should it, Maybe it's not um, the panacea for every problem that we have in healthcare, but I think there are areas where it makes sense to take a national approach to the delivery, especially with Canada's small population. Um, You know, there was an editorial in the CMAJ a couple of months ago penned uh, our CEO and Jane Philpott and Kumana and Wilson penned an article uh, contemplating a Canadian vaccination services, um, which would be kind of a more of a national model for uh, standard policy, standard distribution, acquisition, uh, sourcing. Uh, and that would take a consistent approach across the board i think there's other areas like you're seeing you're seeing whether it's the canadian partnership for cancer like there's 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 umbrella organizations that are trying to bring much more of a national perspective to things and and and, um in our federation the healthcare is a a provincial domain but i do think there's a, a number of areas given our population given the ability to pool resources uh, to take a more national approach uh, across the board. And and if you want, uh, when we began down the road of uh, talking about organs and tissues and, and looking at national strategies, some people asked, like, how can you possibly do that? It's organized by province and healthcare, care. And so the answer was, well, we did it with the blood system. So yep. it's doable.
0: It's doable. Certainly, and, certainly on a national vaccination system. Your point earlier about you know mixed messages and <laughs> your facts and my facts, uh, depending on the province you were in, the facts were different coming from the authorities, uh, or at least you would interpret the facts were different based on their actions. If we at least had a national system, we'd have lost uh, nine points of confusion.
1: Yeah, and then uh, let's face so. it, in in you know certain markets like Ottawa or whatever, where people cross borders all the time. And then they're facing different policy decisions, <laughs> whether you're 30 minutes to the left or 30 minutes to the right. Um, it, it's just very confusing. And, and, you know, as people want to be able to move around, a consistent approach, I think, would have been a sound one. But, uh, yeah, I, I think there's an opportunity to, to think more holistically. And I, I think maybe there there needs to be an appetite, though, uh, to, to harmonize some of these, uh, these programs. And, and, you know, I, I think... Um, I recall uh, a while back, and I don't recall if it was Ipsos or someone else had pulled uh, pan-C organizations to see what what was getting in the way of healthcare reform and and more collaboration across jurisdictions. And I think the number one reason was vested interests, and uh, and that's you know each union, each uh, institution, each province, like they all want to you know I don't want anyone to be the boss of me. So uh, if we can yeah. someday find a way to make it a patient-centric decision-making and and build out a model around that. Uh, Maybe I'm uh, a little uh, optimistic there, but uh, I I think that
0: would be the solution. One would hope that uh, public service would come above best interests at some point. Uh, But anyway, uh, Ron, thank you. Uh, I know you're incredibly busy. Um, I have one other quick question. Does your 17-year-old son, one of his rites of passage, does he routinely beat you at golf now?
1: He actually beat me on a on a trip. Uh, I think it was last year. For the first time, he broke a hundred and also beat his dad. And uh, he he thinks that that is going to be the the norm every time he goes out now. So, yes. but you're going to uh, learn, man. Eh? All
0: right. Yes, that's uh, right. Well, again, thank you very much. Uh, I I know you're super busy with blood services. Uh, I'd love to have you back again someday to to chat with us. Maybe we can talk about your your plans to join the seniors golf tour or something like that as yeah, well. Yeah.
1: Sounds good, Mike. Thanks very much. And thanks to you. And uh, remember that together we're Canada's lifeline. So let's keep that going.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Ron. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Public Opinion and Informed Insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.